Imagine, you're settled into a short flight from Bosnia and Herzegovina to Dubrovnik, Croatia as part of an official assignment on behalf of the United States of America. Although a heavy storm rages outside the aircraft, inside the plane it's all business. You're surrounded by government VIPs on an official trade mission. The cabin is abuzz with productive conversations, frustration over scheduled delays, and a growing sense of impatience as you prepare for touchdown. After all, a full afternoon of meetings with international delegations awaits your arrival. Suddenly, a warning sign from the cockpit signals something worse than the weather is about to impact the flight. What happened next? It's time to find out. This is Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast. Welcome back to Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast. I'm Stephanie. I'm Shelly. And we are so glad you're here. We get together every week to talk about our shared, not-so-secret obsession, air disasters. Every week, we take turns telling the stories of some of the air disasters that have changed the course of aviation history. The key word for us, though, is stories. We are not super big on the technical side of things because our background is not engineering, but we do talk a lot about the facts, the people, and definitely the legacies that have contributed to safer air travel for all of us. If you're into true crime, if you're into storytelling, this is kind of a welcome home. You will love it here. So we are glad to have you. So, Shelly, today's story is about Dubrovnik, Croatia, and I know that is a city that is near and dear to your heart. It is. It's very near and dear to my heart, actually. Um, My husband, Tony, and I got engaged there back in 2012. It was amazing. I think I knew that. Yeah, it happened along the wall at sunset, and it was the most amazing thing. And yeah, we will always cherish that city. So from like a, a vacation travel standpoint, we love it, and we can't wait to go back. I went there a couple of years ago, too, and I'm I'm right there with you. It's gorgeous. It's, I mean, it's historic. The, the walls of the city practically tell the stories themselves. And what's cool is in Dubrovnik, you can actually walk on the walls, which I, yes. I thought was just fantastic. We had the worst time getting there, though. Um, part of it, I, I have to take full responsibility for. I'm a budget traveler, or at least I like to be a budget traveler. And once in a while, trying to save a little bit of money can sometimes lead me to do really weird things. So <laughs> my husband, Adam, and I, uh, we were in Venice. And we were trying to get to Dubrovnik. And for some reason, no direct flights, not a big deal. We decide that because it was looking like we were going to have to do an overnight somewhere or possibly spend like six hours in the air flying between two or three different airports just to get to Dubrovnik. And I mean, if you're thinking about the map, Venice to Dubrovnik is, I mean, you you probably could just take a boat there. It's way easier. It's ridiculous to have to fly and have connections. But the connection we ended up with, believe it or not, took us through London. So again, yeah, picture the map. Like what? this is this is the it's the stupidest idea. But hey, it, this flight cost a hundred dollars per person. We ended up having to spend the night in London at the airport. We got a room in one of the uh, hotels that the, ran on airport property. Again, it was under a hundred bucks, cheaper than the flights that would have wasted an entire day of sunlight. I justified this. It it ended up working out fine. And we ended up getting into Dubrovnik the next morning at 1030. But it was not without drama, serious drama. So Dubrovnik is not the easiest airport to fly into. 
And we, so we're on this British Airways flight. We're kind of toward the back of the plane. It's totally full. We're on approach. They say, take your seats for arrival. They come through, they do the safety check. And so Adam has the window seat. I'm in the middle. And then there's a woman who's next to me. And so I kind of am leaning over Adam because I love when the plane lands. It's just like the best thing ever is the ground kind of rises up and meets the plane. And I'm noticing that we're going in really fast, like faster than usual. You know, when you fly a lot, you know kind of how fast the plane should be going at various times. And I actually said to Adam, I feel like we're going in kind of hot on this one. Like, I, I'm just not sure what this landing's going to be. And so just before we're about to land, all of a sudden the plane kind of shoots back into the sky. But not just oh, up no. into the sky, like above the clouds. And we level out. We're definitely at a cruising altitude. And the plane is completely silent because all around us, people looking out the window have noticed the exact same thing we did. We were supposed to land and now we are definitely not landed. We're definitely back up in the air. And so the captain comes on and he says, you may be wondering why we didn't land. And I'm thinking, yep, that was the first question I had for you today. <laughs> and so he says, the wind is really strong. And in fact, it was so strong that we couldn't have guaranteed a safe landing. And so we decided at the last minute we had to abort. That's why we're back up here. But we think that it's better right now. We're actually going to turn around and try this again. So I turn to Adam and I, I guess kind of loudly say, I kind of wish he didn't use the word try when he's talking about landing the plane. And the woman next to me instantly bursts into tears. So I'm like, shoot, that was the wrong thing to say. Oh, and, no, I mean, that's people, the worst thing. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I kind of felt really bad about that. But uh -huh. people around us are starting, I mean, people are getting really panicky because, you know, when you go through an aborted landing it's terrifying to think about the next go. Like what happens if this doesn't go well? So as it turns out, the second attempt was absolutely fine. The wind conditions were perfect. We landed. There's a whole lot of applause. There are many more people crying, tears of gratitude at this point. I have never thanked a pilot so many times as I've walked through the cabin. You know, like sometimes the, the crew is at the door when you leave. I like, I'm like, can I hug you? That was great. Like, thanks for getting You're us like, down. We, we just went through something together. I feel like I know you. Can I have a hug? Is that weird? We are Sorry. eternally fond. Exactly. Right. I was like, we, we really, we really have, yeah, we've shared a moment together. I won't forget this. You will forget this in 20 minutes. So <laughs> we land, we're on the ground, we get our luggage and we had hired a transfer to take us from the airport to the hotel. Uh, we booked it in advance. So there was a driver with our name, you know, on a little card over at, at baggage claim. So we, we meet him and we're walking out to the car and he says that was quite a landing. And I said, yeah, you know, I've never been through one quite like that before. And he said, you're really lucky. You were the only flight that's made it in today. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, every other flight so far has been sent back up to split, which is, you know, up the coast a ways, but by, you know, by flight, it's not so bad, but by car, it's, it's about a six hour drive. It's a voyage. Yeah. It's a voyage. Uh, so apparently what had happened is all of the other flights had to abort and they all just decided to bail and go to split for the people who were in that not so desirable situation. It wasn't so easy as to just like get on a bus or something like that and head back down to Dubrovnik instead. And you probably are aware of this 
Bosnia and Herzegovina have about, I, I think it's probably something small, like a 10 mile stretch of land in the middle of Croatia. It gives them access to the sea. So when you are in Split and you're trying to get down to Dubrovnik, you have to go through that stretch. And it's not just going through, it's a border. So you have to get your passport out. You have to and you're stamped into Bosnia, you're stamped out on the other side, back into Dubrovnik. And with all of those people, with all of that luggage, it can take a couple of hours. That's why it's so long and so difficult to get back. So the fact that we landed was, you know, like the greatest gift to our vacation we possibly could have imagined. It was, uh, it was quite the moment for us. Sounds like it. Wow. What was interesting, too, though, is that while we're in the car and we're sort of processing all of this, he mentioned that years before, there had been a plane that had such a disastrous descent into the airport that it crashed. And that's what brings us to today's story about U.S. Air Force IFO-21. Oh, no, you're going to ruin Dubrovnik for me, aren't you? I hope not, but I'm super sorry if I do. <laughs> I still love it even after thinking through and working on this story. So I promise you, you're still going to love it too. So today's story is based on a number of articles and accounts, including some information from Air and Space Magazine, the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, Wikipedia, the US Department of Defense, and also a really good episode of Air Disasters, which is on the Smithsonian Channel. Um, it's called The Fog of War. You can find links to all of these resources on our website, which is taketothesky.podcast.com. Let's go back in time to April 3rd, 1996. United States Air Force IFO-21 was part of a trade mission mandated by NATO. So to very quickly jump back into the pages of world history, April 1996 was just a few months after the end of the Bosnian War. And IFO-21 was part of what was known as the Implementation Force. When the war ended and the Dayton Accords were signed in Paris, they started in Dayton, Ohio, but they were signed in Paris in December of 1995, the Implementation Force was created to help keep the peace in the region. That's how this particular flight came to be in Croatian airspace that day. The flight was en route from Bosnia and Herzegovina to Dubrovnik, where the passengers were going to meet up with other key delegates working toward establishing peace and rebuilding the economy in the wake of the war a very cool mission, a very important mission, and a very good reason to be flying that particular day. Yeah, absolutely. So IFO-21 was, as you can imagine, with an official mission like this, completely full with the VIPs that day. And chief among them was the USA's Secretary of Commerce, Ron Brown. Ron Brown was a bit of a political rock star, he had served as the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, and he was the first African-American Secretary of Commerce. Brown had been appointed by President Bill Clinton in 1993 to serve in his role as the Secretary of Commerce. And he was one of the people who most significantly contributed to Clinton's election to the presidency. He had put or Clinton had put all of his faith and trust into Ron Brown to lead efforts that were going to boost the economy in that region. Ron Brown was recognized as being enormously capable, you know, really one of the Washington insiders who could achieve results and really get things done. 
In addition to Ron Brown, there were 35 passengers on board that day, uh, including Ron Brown. He was joined by a whole host of very important people, including uh, Dwayne Christian. Uh, he was the security officer assigned to Ron Brown. Adam Darling, who was his assistant. Carol Hamilton, who was his press secretary. And Catherine Hoffman, who was his senior advisor for strategic scheduling and special initiatives. There were a number of other very important men and women who were on board as well, including Gail Dobert, who had served as the deputy director for the, the Office of Business Liaison. That's a pretty good title. Charles Messner, who was the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for International Trade, and William Morton, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Economic Development. That is quite the passenger list. And that is just a handful of people who were looking forward to serving in a very important role on that particular day. In addition to a cabin full of VIPs, there were also a few crew members on board. IFO 21 was piloted by Captain Ashley Davis, who went by AJ, and he was co-piloted by Captain Tim Schaefer. Both pilots were part of the 76th Airlift Squadron, which was based in Rammstein, Germany. The 76th Airlift Squadron was a trained unit with special expertise in transporting VIPs and other dignitaries. Captain Davis and Captain Schaefer were both rather young. Uh, Davis was 35 at the time and Schaefer was 33. But they were both experienced with the aircraft they were flying and they were definitely experienced pilots. Davis actually had flown close to 3,000 miles on behalf of the military during the Persian Gulf War. He was no stranger to pressure and no stranger to some of the challenges that can come with flight. In fact, the month before the flight to Dubrovnik, he had flown First Lady Hillary Clinton to Bosnia and to Turkey. He had never flown into Dubrovnik, and in fact, Captain Schaefer hadn't either before that day. So this was a brand new route for them, brand new mission for both of them. And in addition to the pilots, Technical Sergeant Shelley Kelly was also on board. She served as a flight attendant for the most part. Her role was to ensure the passengers were comfortable, and she was there to keep them posted on any updates related to their arrival. So quite the group that day. A lot of important people on board. They seem highly trusted and highly experienced. It's exactly who you would want to, to be a part of, you know, guiding and shepherding a bunch of diplomats to an important mission. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, there are definitely squadrons that are specifically designed in order to provide the kind of transportation that was needed for VIPs. So, you know, definitely people who were really aware of what their role was and certainly trained in how to execute accordingly. Speaking, by the way, of the day's route and mission, Ron Brown and his team started their day in Tuzla, Bosnia, where they had meetings and also a quick visit to eat burgers with some of the American troops who were stationed there. Kind of a, a fun little aside there, you know, bringing a little bit of goodwill and cheer to some of the troops who were in that part of the world at that point. And from there, the flight to Dubrovnik, once they wrapped up, was really pretty short, uh, which was a very good thing for them. The team had been running late all day. You know, it's one of those days. They were hoping that they'd have an early arrival into Dubrovnik, and that would put them a little closer to their intended schedule for the day. By two o'clock in the afternoon, though, they're settled into their flight. They're preparing for their initial descent into the city of Dubrovnik. Despite the fact I am almost 
always found in the economy section of a plane. And I'm not even really talking about premier economy or economy plus or whatever they call the seats with more legroom. I mean, real economy. I mean, middle seat back by the bathroom economy. I still love hearing the details of the onboard experience. So let's talk about that for a moment. The aircraft for IFO 21 was a CT-43, which is a modified Boeing 737-200, which was usually used for commercial flights across many different airlines. But in this case, it was specially configured for this particular mission. The Air Force maintained a small fleet of 737s that were used to transport special delegations like the Implementation Force. So instead of row after row of front-facing seating, you know, like we're really used to, the plane had fewer seats and they were set up to more easily facilitate conversations. Business gets done more easily that way. And when you think about the fact that everyone on board had a hectic schedule and enormous demands on their time, maximizing time on board to prepare or to talk with others made the day that much more efficient. So very comfortable, you know, just great configuration for that kind of thing. It's kind of like an office in air, which is so important. It is. Yeah. It is. I've always it, wanted to be inside of one of those, by the way, just to kind of see what the layout is like. I have definitely spent my share of time looking at some of the luxury aircraft, you know, like the aircraft that people either own or that they would have a timeshare on, the ones with the super cushy seats. And, you know, they just, they seem very luxurious. And this flight is very much like that. You know, it is designed for business. It is designed to help these people maximize their time. And like I said, that's important. Their schedule was just all over the place that day. And so it was important for them to be able to get some work done before they arrived in Dubrovnik and went immediately into sets of meetings. As IFO 21 approached Dubrovnik, the region was experiencing some outrageously terrible weather. There was a torrential downpour that had been going on for quite a while, and the cloud cover was so heavy during the day that the airport had actually closed passenger flights for a period of time. I think we've we've both experienced some weather in Dubrovnik, but as you know, as far as as that goes, it it does happen from time to time. It still happens today. It's a difficult runway. It's a difficult airport location, and sometimes the weather is just so bad that it's not worth it to risk it. And I think wind is a big issue there too, right? Isn't it? There's a lot of cross shears. Yeah. Yeah. For my flight, that was exactly the problem. The wind was so strong, blowing in exactly the wrong direction that they weren't able to, to land safely. And I mean, if that happens to commercial flights, it absolutely would happen to a flight like IFO 21. You know, the wind doesn't care if you've got dignitaries on board, it just blows. So after 2 p.m., a flight carrying... American ambassador to Croatia, Peter Galbraith, had arrived safely. Thinking a little bit about the time frame, this is less than an hour before IFO 21 is scheduled to arrive. And there were points during the afternoon when conditions seemed to be improving. It was safe enough for the 2 p.m. flight to land. There are times where the rain is letting up a little bit, but that's the way the weather is in Dubrovnik. It's gusty and cold and gray skies one minute, and then it transforms into clear and calm skies the next minute. So another regular day as far as weather is concerned and as far as aviation is concerned. To make matters worse, though, Flying into the region was not exactly straightforward at this time during history. 
In the months following the Bosnian War, there were a number of airspace restrictions that required any airplane, whether commercial or whether transporting foreign dignitaries, to follow strict flight paths on approved courses. Just as the plane approached the Croatian border, Captain Davis received a message from a peacekeeping early warning aircraft called Magic 51 that was responsible for policing the skies and ensuring flights stayed on course. Magic 51 notified Davis that the flight was leaving the approved flight corridor and would need to reroute in order to stay within safe airspace. Yeah. On one hand, I mean, this is a minor issue. Safe flight corridors changed all the time back in the days after the Bosnian War ended. And as long as pilots were properly notified, they could adjust their flight plan, adjust the course, and continue on. In this situation, though, Captain Davis was well aware of the fact he had a full flight of VIPs who were impatiently expecting an on-time or, you know, hopefully even early arrival. And when he learned he needed to adjust his route, that meant he was also tacking on about 15 minutes to his flight time. This is not the greatest of news, especially because members of the 76th Airlift Squadron often suffered from something that they kind of affectionately called get there itis that can kind of, yeah, I I love that term. And, you know, it it makes sense. It kind of pits their judgment decision-making against their need to ensure VIPs keep their schedules. You cannot delay these people. They've got important meetings and your job is to get them there on time. And it's actually, it's that, and their job is to also, you know, to get them there, but to get them there earlier ahead of schedule, keep things on track, right? So it's be safe and be on time. And a lot of times those things we find start to compete with each other. Well, they do. They do. And it kind of adds some stress too. You know, I mean, you're starting, you have to make decisions. You have to, you know, make sure that you're, you're taking safety into consideration. But there, there were reports that people were asking, you know, are we going to get there on time? What are the odds we're going to get there a little bit early? It looks like things are moving along well, but then this one, you know, truly somewhat minor change to the flight path that ends up setting them back by 15 minutes. And, you know, 15 minutes, every one of those minutes counts when you are awaiting important meetings and things like that. So not good news. And in addition to the fact that they're now going to be a bit delayed, the rain is still coming down in droves as Dave is piloting the plane toward Dubrovnik's airport. So once the flight was back in approved airspace, it was the airport itself that posed the next set of challenges. Here's what happens with the airport. During the war, the Dubrovnik airport suffered some serious damage after it was taken over by the Serbs, and they had taken special care to take out the airport's instrument landing system. Instrument landing systems, and I promise we won't get too technical on this, they are usually a crucial part of a safe landing experience for planes. And The way that they typically work is that they use radio waves to help guide planes onto the runway. They help planes ensure that they're at the appropriate horizontal and vertical position at key points. That keeps the plane in the right position as it descends and lands. When an instrument landing system is in place, landing a plane is significantly easier than when there isn't an instrument landing system in place. The good news, for Dubrovnik anyway, is that they had a new instrument landing system ordered. The bad news for Captain Davis and for the flight is that the new instrument landing system was not in place on April 3rd, 1996. Mm, It actually occurred 
there was a delay with the contractor who was supposed to deliver. And oh, so no. we don't have that technology yet. In the absence of modern technology, the Dubrovnik airport relied on a system that used non-directional beacons to guide planes toward the runway. The way that this system works is that pilots would intercept an audible signal from a beacon. Once they did, they would review their flight charts, they would identify their location, and then they would guide the plane toward the airport based on the combined data from both the signal that they heard and their chart position. Little more manual, it's pretty archaic as far as navigation goes, especially in the mid-1990s, but it works. It's, if you want to think about it this way, it's a bit like using paper maps and road signs. You know, we all used to travel the globe using MapQuest printouts and directions that relied on things like, you know, drive to the second McDonald's and turn left. But if you've seen the green tractor under the large oak tree, you've gone too far. You know, you're using like visual cues basically to get yourself where you want to go. And it's it's kind of weird now. Like you think about, you know, we use our phones most of the time. They give us customized, detailed directions to absolutely anywhere we want to go. But if our battery died and someone handed us a MapQuest printout and maybe like a description of that tractor or something, we could totally find our way. So this is kind of the system that they're working with. They would rather have the modern technology, but in the absence of that, non-directional beacons can provide them with exactly what they need so that they can land safely. So let's go back to the non-directional beacons for a minute. Dubrovnik's airport had two beacons in place. And the way this would work is the crew needed to listen for the first one, make their course adjustments based on the location where they heard that signal, and then they would listen for the second one to confirm that they were on the right course. As they were listening for the first signal, they received communication from the pilot of the flight that had landed with Ambassador Galbraith on board. The pilot was an incredibly experienced pilot when it came to the Dubrovnik airport. And he let Captain Davis know that the weather was pretty relentless. He suggested that they keep an aborted landing as an option and consider rerouting to Split, which is, you know, as we talked about, a city north of Dubrovnik where the weather was much better that day. You may not need me to say this, but as you might expect, this is unwelcome advice. The crew was already edgy about the delays in the bad weather. And the VIPs on board would not be happy to be diverted, especially to split. See, and this is interesting from like the lay person perspective, which is my perspective in that when you said, you know, the the first um, plane, the captain of the first plane was basically like, hey, heads up, you might want to do this. My initial Uh thought was, what great advice. So helpful. (laughs) And I forgot, though, about what it really is like to be in the shoes of a pilot with all of these expectations on you for timely arrival. And when you're already behind schedule, the last thing you want to hear is, oh, and by the way, you might not be able to land here. You may have to go way up the coast, which for, you know, your VIPs, that's not going to be an acceptable solution. Yeah, it adds so many complications. You know, you think about your standard air passenger, you know, somebody like us, perhaps. If we end up in split, it's a huge pain to get back down to Dubrovnik. There are buses and you've got to get your luggage and it takes forever and it adds a bunch of hours to your day. And here, even if you take out some of those challenges, even if you say, you know, maybe they have a faster way to get there, maybe they have fewer stops or something, It's still taking them away from meetings. The people they were supposed to talk with, the meetings themselves, were in Dubrovnik, not Split. So it was not 
really even feasible to consider taking them somewhere else. Exactly. It's yeah, it's just, it's not it it's not a good alternative. Fortunately, though, as they were wrapping up their communication with the pilot, they intercepted the sound of the first beacon. And that meant that they were within range of the airport, roughly about two miles away. Great news for them. And even though the visibility was terrible, they consulted their charts, they connected with the tower, they were cleared for landing, and so they pressed on through the storm. Just a few moments later, this is minutes now before 3 o'clock p.m., IFO 21 lost all contact with the tower. In the absence of a functional approach radar, the tower had absolutely no way to determine where the plane was. After it became clear that the plane had not somehow diverted to split, had not you know, somehow aborted the landing and, and decided that they weren't actually going to make the runway, the tower notified police that the plane was missing. As the police mobilized, Ambassador Galbraith was also notified that the tower had lost contact with the plane. He notified the U.S. State Department, and they activated a U.S. military search and rescue in the area. It took moments. They were within two miles of the runway before they completely lost contact. So this is something that we hear time and time again, right? They were so close, and yet we know it's typically the takeoff and the landing that if something's going to happen, that's typically where it happens. But to hear that they were just so close is, again, another yeah, a heartbreaking I mean, aspect of this. I mean, we knew it was coming, right? We knew it was coming, but still, to well, always hear it, it's like, ugh. We, uh, we don't call ourselves the Air Disaster Podcast for nothing. So it uh, it took hours before the pieces began to come together for this. The weather was bad during the flight's approach, and it actually became even worse in the hours after the plane went missing. Visibility was at near zero levels. There was no immediate evidence of a crash either. In fact, emergency responders assumed the flight had somehow crashed into the Adriatic Sea, and that's where they started. The flight did have a crash position indicator, but because the airport was so lacking in modern technology, it wasn't able to detect that signal. And frankly, without proof of a crash, there was no guarantee that it would have activated anyway. They may have been listening for nothing. So the search continued for hours, and it was fruitless. The plane had disappeared. It was just nowhere to be found. That's so crazy. That's like, for me, I mean, granted, you know, it's 2020 right now, so mm-hmm. this is some time ago. But still, when I think of the 1990s, I don't typically think of and a crash plane that was about two miles away from the airport would be that difficult to locate. But then you put in all of those factors around the lack of the technology And it makes sense, but it's just so interesting to hear that that was an issue in this situation. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. It's one of the reasons why knowing that this was happening in the months after the end of the Bosnian War is so important. Because, I mean, honestly, I talk about the 90s like they were five years ago. I mean, I it's like I miss decades or something like that. I do too. Like, <laughs> yeah. Me here. I'm like, 1995 is like 10 or 15 years ago, right? It's like, nope, just don't, you know, no, no. It's, you know, <laughs> like 25 years ago at this point. I know, it's but crazy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that's what's crazy. And when you think about the fact that in the months after the war, knowing the damage that the airport had had ended up dealing with, it wasn't really likely that they would have rebuilt some of this infrastructure anyway. And of course, the pilots knew what they were flying into. 
they understood that there were some limitations as far as technology was concerned, but they also didn't expect that the plane would go missing. So in some cases, you think this isn't technology we really need anyway. More than four hours after IFO 21 lost contact with the tower, it was about seven o'clock at night, a local resident, a man named Ivo Jerkovic, who lived in a village with just 45 residents, called the police to report that he saw the tail of the plane in the mountains. Oh, no. According to a New York Times article, he said, I heard something bump in the mountain and explode. I thought, are they shelling it again or what? He didn't have a phone in his home because he lives in a village with 45 people. So he got into his Fiat, he drove down the mountain to his friend's house, and he called the police from there. Oh, wow. I mean, good for him for, for you, doing all of that, right? I mean, you think, oh. I mean, th th this is like the unsung hero of the story. I mean, somebody who, who happened to look out and, you know, you think too, the sensitivities of sounds like that in the months after the war, Completely. you know, to, to look out the window, I'm sure his, like he said, you know, he wondered if they might be shelling his area again. And then, you know, to, to look out and see something very unexpected. Um, and, and then follow that up by having to actually leave home and, and make a phone call to report that. I mean, he he expedited the search and he expedited the ability to collect information and to begin to process what happened faster than perhaps we otherwise would have been able to do. At this point, the weather was just as relentless as it had been in the hours that it took for um, for the police to find out about the crash. The weather really has not started to cooperate in any way. Um, and in fact, now it's even worse because night has fallen on Dubrovnik. Investigators, once they knew where they should be searching, they had to search the mountain by foot because they couldn't make the journey by car. The terrain just really didn't cooperate there. And what they found was what they now expected to find. They had proof that IFO-21 had crashed into the mountains outside of Dubrovnik. The crash scene itself is the stuff of nightmares. The plane's tail is, in fact, intact, but the fuselage is in pieces and scattered around the mountainside. The people who had been safely seatbelted inside of the plane are also scattered along with the wreckage. And it becomes very clear very quickly that this is not going to be a search and rescue mission. This will be a search and recover mission. There were 35 passengers on board IFO 21. And for a brief moment, investigators determined that there were 34 fatalities and a sole survivor. At about 10 p.m., investigators found Technical Sergeant Shelley Kelly severely injured but alive in the tail section of the plane. This is so amazing. I had no idea there was a sole you, survivor here. Oh, my goodness. These are well, like my favorite stories. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, wow. Well, among other life-threatening injuries, her spine was severed. And oh. she was breathing when they discovered her, but she did succumb to her injuries in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Oh my gosh. It is difficult to know exactly what happened in the flight's final moments. Captain Davis and Captain Schaefer, the pilot and the co-pilot, were likely killed instantly upon impact. But because Technical Sergeant Kelly was found alive, albeit briefly, hours after the crash, it's really not possible to know if there were any other immediate survivors. All that's known is that by the next morning, all 35 souls on board were gone. So I'm, I'm sorry to, to take the sole survivor away from you at the very end of this story, but it is, 
it is heartbreaking to think a little bit about what that what that would have looked like and to know that there were most likely multiple people who were aware maybe not what happened, but something did happen. The fate of IFO 21 is a true aviation tragedy. And after hearing this story and the outcome, it's pretty easy to see what contributed to the crash and why it happened. We have a very challenging combination here with bad weather, experienced pilots. Uh, it, it, they were inexperienced with the airport in this case, and we had outdated airport technology. But if there is one thing that we have learned during the first couple of months of stories here at Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast, these incidents tend to be so multi-layered that it would be impossible to squarely place blame on any one component. These stories, this one especially, they're like intricate puzzles. And that's why the investigation is so fascinating to me. They often uncover some details that help to tell the complete story. So that's a little bit of foreshadowing for you. Let's take a look at the depths of the decision-making and mistakes that contributed to the crash. And let's start by chatting a little bit about the final approach. The flight's initial descent didn't show any abnormalities or concerns until its final moments. So the investigators were initially really baffled by how the navigation could have become so confused that the plane crashed into the mountains instead of following the flight plan directly to the runway. Remember, we talked quite a bit about non-directional beacons? Mm-hmm. Yep, talk absolutely. about those one more time. <laughs> So we know that the Dubrovnik airport relies on non-directional beacons to guide planes safely to the runway. The pilots were able to hear and interpret the first beacon signal. The way this works, it emits a Morse code signal that makes it very easy to identify. You know just what that sound is. Once they hear it, they know that they should descend to an appropriate altitude and they should start to listen for the second beacon. The second beacon, which is located very close to the airport, is used as a final warning that the pilots have to be able to see the runway in order to continue to land. In Dubrovnik, if they're not able to see the runway, they would have to declare a missed landing, abort, circle back, and try again. Multiple attempts are common at the airport even to this day, just as we've talked about. And as part of the investigation, the investigators were able to confirm that both of the beacons were working optimally on April 3rd, 1996. In fact, we know that's true because other flights had landed safely that day using the same non-directional beacon technology to guide the process. And in fact, even less than an hour before the ambassador's flight has landed. Yeah, that's even right. Though, we, we talked about that one. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, even though the system is just, you know, woefully outdated, the non-directional beacons are not to blame for the crash. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to eliminate that from the reason that the flight crashed. So let's talk about weather. We know the weather was terrible that day. We also know that pilots were advised that they may want to consider landing somewhere else. In addition, though, we know other flights landed in the same weather pattern. So the weather was bad, but also not the direct cause of the crash. So we can eliminate that from being the exact reason why IFO 21 crashed into the mountains. Which is insane because that was my next thought. Was it, of course, it then has to be the weather because it was so severe, the, yeah. the downpours, all of that, and then just the typical environment there. I was really expecting to hear you say like that was that was the cause. 
Yeah, you know, I, I kind of thought at first, maybe the beacons, maybe there was something wrong with that. You know, they, they heard the first one, not the second one, but nope, they're both optimal. They're both, and, and the pilots would have known that too, because they had talked to the pilot who had landed just before them. But yeah, the weather, you know, you figure they just get caught in one of those wind gusts or something like that. They think that they're doing fine. Something just pushes them out of the way. You know, it just, you, you don't quite know exactly what happens, but you know, it's the weather. In this case though, we can more, we know it's a, a factor, but we can eliminate it as being the cause. So let's talk about the plane. During the crash investigation, given the very high profile of the flight and the many people who were on it, uh, who were you know working on behalf of the USA, there was no detail left undocumented. The plane didn't have a cockpit voice recorder installed on it. And because there wasn't a cockpit voice recorder, they didn't have one to search for. So we take that out of the equation. They're not looking for the pilot confirmation as to what might have gone wrong. But I feel like, is that unusual? Because I feel like that's unusual for nope. that time. Ooh. Nope, nope, <laughs> nope. And we're going to talk about that too. But no, no. Um, having a cockpit voice recorder was not required at that point in time. And so, no, they, they didn't have one. They weren't looking for one, didn't even think about it. They also, while they were looking at the, the plane and the, the wreckage, found that the plane crashed with its landing gear and flaps down, just as you would expect for a plane that was intending to land safely on a runway. So, so far, we're kind of coming up empty with this. But one key piece that the investigators were able to locate was the discovery of the plane's ADF, which is an automatic detection finder. An ADF is used to listen to the signals emitted from the non-directional beacons. So this is the part of the plane that's talking to and picking up those signals coming from those non-directional beacons. When thinking about the approach into Dubrovnik, the ADF would listen to the signal from the first beacon, but it wouldn't listen for the signal from the second one. It would need to be tuned to a different frequency in order to pick up that signal, which was a manual process. In this situation, most likely co-captain Schaefer would be, uh, he'd be the one who'd be switching between the two frequencies. So he'd be on one frequency to listen to one, then he'd switch over to another frequency to try to pick up the second one. Usually though, aircraft flying into Dubrovnik would need two ADFs to operate optimally. Because with two ADFs, you would have one listening for this first signal, and you have the second one listening for the second signal. So you wouldn't have any manual work to do at all. You'd simply be sitting back listening for those signals to be picked up. That makes I sense, have, and to me would seem like would seem like a good idea to have because then it also maybe takes one more task off of the plates of the pilot and the co-pilot. Oh, completely, completely. Mm-hmm. But IFO twenty one only had one ADF. And the pilots had to tune back and forth to listen to the signals. When the ADF was located, it was set to the frequency of the first beacon, but not the second one. So that's a lot of information. So let's pause and reconstruct the final few minutes of IFO 21. It is pouring rain. Neither pilot had flown into Dubrovnik before. They have a cabin, a cabin full of dignitaries with important meetings, tight schedules, and they're running late due to, among other reasons, a changed flight path because of the approved airspace restriction. They had just talked to an experienced pilot who said that they may need to abort the landing and head for split, and they're using a single ADF to tune back and forth between frequencies to pick up two unique non-directional beacon signals to guide their landing since visual cues were non-existent and there was no functional instrument landing system. 
stressful landing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a stressful landing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so there's still one more piece to the puzzle because we're now seeing that there's just, there's a lot on the pilots and it's starting to look a little bit like human error. We're not going to take human error out of this equation just yet, but what we are going to do is say that there is one more piece that starts to take the pointed fingers away from the pilots and toward their commanders. Uh-oh. Talk about landing charts. One of the final discoveries made during the investigation was related to the landing charts the pilots used as they planned for and made their descent. And those landing charts noted a very serious issue. When it comes to landing charts, every country is responsible for publishing approach charts that provide information about the terrain, which helps prepare pilots for the conditions that they're going to see upon approach. The landing charts used for IFO-21 did not meet U.S. standards. They provided incomplete information that contributed to the crash. Specifically, in the USA landing charts, they are required to note a minimum descent altitude of 2,800 feet, which they consider to be a safe minimum descent altitude. But the charts that Captain Davis and Captain Schaefer were using had a minimum altitude of, of 2,150 feet. So oh, wow. pretty big difference there. The difference between the two is actually, I mean, it is huge when you think about altitude. By looking at the charts, they would not have had complete information to use when charting their own descent and arrival into Dubrovnik. But that's huge. I mean, that's a huge piece of information missing, it's, right? It's, it's, and, and it's something that they would not have known they didn't have. They had the charts they were given. They wouldn't have known those charts were incorrect or incomplete. The Air Force, once they realized what had happened here, what had contributed at least, looked into the issue. And what they discovered was shocking. The Air Force, as you may imagine, is a well-regulated branch of the military. They have a huge number of policies and procedures that are used to approve all aspects of their operations, including flight plans and approved airport landings. The investigation determined air landings at the Dubrovnik airport had not been approved by the Air Force. What? This is huge. So the process for determining whether an airport is safe to land at takes time. Investigators brought in Colonel John E. Mazurowski, the commander of the 86th Operations Group, to learn why the pilots were flying an unapproved flight plan. What they discovered is that Colonel Mazurowski had requested approval to waive the review of the Dubrovnik airport because the Air Force had been using the same approach into the airport for years, safety had not been an issue before, and they were concerned that if there were any delays in the review process, it could impede future American diplomatic missions in the region. Right. So it wasn't a priority. It was not a priority. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, any... They were, if they were to delay, especially at a time where safety and peace and economic development in that region was so important, right? that could take away you know, some of what they needed in order to be able to make progress in those missions. And I can only imagine the level of decisions that they have to make are typically with life and death or just very high level impact. You know, it's not just, do we have time for it or not? It's, we have all of these other things that we have to weigh in the balance. And at the end, we have to come up with a decision that we think is best based on 
all of these pieces of data, our experience, the fact that there haven't been any other safety issues or crashes, we go there all the time. Mm-hmm. I get it. I'm not at all justifying it, but I'm de- I definitely can understand how when they had all of the other things to decide regarding, you know, peacekeeping missions and those sorts of things, how this perhaps became less of a priority or a non-priority. Well, there's one more kind of shocking detail that aligns with this information. One week before the crash, a lieutenant colonel had been relieved of his duty for raising concerns about safety procedures for VIP flights, which would have included IFO 21. Oh, no. So although Mazarowski had requested an approval to waive the review of the airport landing procedures, that approval had not yet been granted. The landing charts had not been reviewed and approved. And the moral of the story is the plane shouldn't have even been there that day. That's incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like, it's like, how did it get that far? You know, with all of it, those layers of people that had their eye on the flight plan or knew about the agenda, the mission, the trip, all of those things. How did it get that far is, is a huge question. The word shocking keeps coming to my mind and I keep saying it because that's what it is for me. It's just, it's shocking to allow it to get to that stage. And that's why I think it's important to wrap up today with the legacy of IFO 21. Because from this tragedy and from the loss of 35 lives, military aviation changed. As the investigation concluded, the Air Force produced a 7,000-page report on the crash and the reasons why it happened. I am a big fan of reading documents like this. I did not read the 7,000-page report. I should hope not. (laughs) (laughs) It did have a lot of really important information, and a couple of key notes um, are are, really worth taking a look at. One immediate recommendation related to the aircraft that was used by the Air Force. The Air Force typically, believe it or not, had the lower safety standards for planes than we have on commercial flights, which seems almost counterintuitive, but it's true. Planes did not typically come equipped with cockpit voice recorders, and following the crash of IFO-21, they became standard. So we had talked a little while ago about, you know, you'd think during this time in history they'd have those. Not with the Air Force, but they do now. And it's because of the legacy of this flight. Incredible. It, yeah. Well, you, you think about all of the pieces that might not have had to be put together. They might have had a lot more information if they had had that one piece of technology. So that was good. They uh, made some changes to the aircraft, and that's helpful for everybody's safety. The Dubrovnik Airport was also called out for their poorly designed approach and landing procedure. And it should be noted, they knew about that. They knew about that on that date, as a matter of fact. And the airport now has an instrument landing system. And in fact, it's the one that was in the process of being delivered at that time. So unfortunately, it was very late for the fate of this particular crash. But they it was something that they called out. They knew this was an issue. And of course, that's why they had the non-directional beacon system in place. So they did find that the airport itself was at least partially to blame for the fact that the flight crashed. There were several Air Force officers who were specifically blamed for a failure of command. Uh, Colonel John E. Mazarowski was among them, and in fact, he was demoted to the rank of major following this incident. All aircraft 
this and this for me is a huge one too. When it comes to the Air Force, all aircraft now require approval from the Department of Defense to fly into any airport. That the flight plan, the lack of review, all of that contributed to this. And once that final piece was in play, it became very clear that the pilots did have a lot of, you know, just missing or invalid information. And that certainly contributed uh, to what happened here. And finally, and in some ways, unfortunately, uh, the report does mention pilot error, specifically landing in bad weather, uh, judgment, failure to properly follow the non-directional beacon system. None of this could be ruled out. There was evidence that they may not have wanted to land, uh, despite the fact that they had VIPs, despite the fact there was pressure. When they received the advice that they should have gone to split, that may have been the time to abort and to continue to a place where they knew it would be safe. So the pilots were mentioned as part of the report. But the, for me, anyway, the, the big takeaway here became the fact that IFO 21 has an incredibly, uh, incredibly rich legacy now. It has contributed to some much-needed safety protocols it has allowed for military aircraft to become safer, the transportation of VIPs, and really anybody who finds themselves on board one of those aircraft is now safer. And when you think about the 35 people who lost their lives that day, their legacy continues on in the fact that we now have safer processes, safer systems, because of what we had to learn through the loss of their lives at a, in a very untimely and, and very tragic way. Just an incredible, incredible story. It is always such an unfortunate aspect that there is the cost of lives and in most of these situations, these stories mm -hmm. that we talk about. And and when you look at these factors, I mean, this is another unique one. It was the expectations that the pilots had for their performance and, and the people that they were shepherding around, they wanted to make sure they got them to where they needed to be. You know, split wasn't really a viable solution for them. And then not having all the information, having a wrong landing chart is, is not going to, as you say, it's not going to give them everything that they needed to know to make the right decisions. And then, you know, having one ADF and not two is certainly yeah. a handicap. I mean, it's, it's yeah. not going to help, especially in a situation where they were flying into an airport they hadn't flown into before. And we know it's in terms of airports, right? It's tricky. It's a more challenging landing and takeoff situation. So all yep. of those factors combined, it really did teach us, I think, a lot about what we needed to keep our servicemen and women safe when they're going on these types of flights, you know? So yeah, this is, and it's shocking because I have to tell you, I didn't think it was going to end up where it did, right? I was really no. thinking, like I said, the weather, of course, it's going to be, you know, the weather that, that really was a big cause, but no, no, another surprise. Wow. Yeah. It, it's interesting too, because you think the re I, I guess the reason your mind doesn't go to where the story ends up going is because there are some things you take for granted. You assume that any airport has been vetted, that a flight plan has been reviewed, that an aircraft is equipped with the kind of technology that you need in order to be safe. This is 1996. This isn't 1956. You know, there's there are certain levels of safety that you come to expect. And for me, one of the biggest surprises was finding out that at that point in time, 
the standards between commercial flights and military flights was just so different. So different, right? I had I had never so I this is something that I know very little about, which is the difference between and hearing that there was a vast difference, I never would have would thought that. And I'm glad no. though that after this tragedy that the gap between the two closed a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a powerful legacy. And we yeah. tell a lot of stories that have powerful legacies, but What's nice is that every story like this has the opportunity to have a true and lasting impact on aviation safety. And, you know, although I don't typically fly military aircraft that often, it does make me feel good knowing that the lessons learned here are keeping servicemen and women safe these days, that when you serve our nation or when you serve the United States of America, you have the the opportunity to benefit from safety protocol, just as we have come to expect and even demand when we get on a leisure flight, you know, from, you know, D.C. to L.A. or something like that. Mm-hmm. So just a yeah, it's it's a it's a great story. It was one I would not have known about if it weren't for that taxi driver after my ridiculous landing into Dubrovnik. And frankly, learning about this story, I I feel like I can't even complain about that day anymore. I just wish I could go back to that poor woman and apologize for scaring her. I really didn't mean it. (laughs) (laughs) Chances are the unfortunate truth is she's probably been scared on other flights and it has nothing to do with that moment. So she just might be an unfortunate nervous flyer as we've all probably encountered. <laughs> I, feel, I feel bad if I sent her to therapy over that, but I mean, we did land and we were very safe and I, I she seemed very grateful when we were back on the ground. So maybe she's forgotten all about it. Hope she doesn't <laughs> somehow listen to this and be reminded. And in that case, I'm sorry. <laughs> Keep my mouth shut next time. But yeah. so there you have it. That is the story of IFO 21. Oh, that was that was so great. And just even even though, you know, Dubrovnik was not the centerpiece of this story, it was really the backdrop, you know, just even the mention of it really makes me again, we talk about this all the time, especially in light of recent events, but missing travel and can't, you know, can't get back to to being able to do that. It was interesting. I was just reading um, actually earlier at the time of this recording earlier today an article that came out on secretflying.com about uh, face masks and what is going to be the expectation around face masks if and when we start to be able to travel again. And it seems like, at least based on this article, and again, as we know, so many things change in real time. So what it might be two days from now might not be anything like what this, you know, article is um, conveying, but basically Mm -hmm. airline crews are being told not to enforce face mask policies on board. So basically what they've said is we're going to encourage passengers to wear a face mask, but because the um, role of a flight attendant is informational, it's not enforcement, they will remind passengers of their policies, of the procedures, et cetera, but they're not going to be put into the position of actually enforcing them, which means passengers, at least at this point, would not be excluded from a flight if they're, as long as they're following all other rules and regulations, they wouldn't be put off of a flight by not wearing a face covering or a face mask. So that's just really interesting kind of real-time information that's coming out and kind of giving us a sneak peek, I think, of what the state of travel might look like, you know, at some point in the very near future. Yeah, there will be a lot of changes when we are able to travel safely again. And I, yeah, the face mask 
challenge. And for some people, it truly is a challenge. I realize they are they are warm, they are uncomfortable. And I know that there are some people who have difficulty breathing when you're wearing a face covering. But it is, it, it's an interesting position to think about with the role of flight attendants and, and the personnel who staff our flights. Because I think that the article makes a good point. They're not the police. They, I mean, you, I don't think you can expect that they have the power to be able to force somebody to put something on. It's, it, this is, it's going to be interesting because I think the more we start to open up again, and I know for many of us, we are going to be in, I think a, a lot of states are calling it like a phase one. We're mm-hmm. going to be in some form of a phase one for a while. Travel, especially leisure travel, probably isn't something a lot of us are going to be doing. But as we start to think toward the future and we think about what it's going to be like to start to travel again, I think these are the questions that people are going to start to ask themselves. There may be people who will feel very uncomfortable getting on a plane for a very long time because of the fact that there may be people who will choose not to wear a mask or who may not be able to wear a mask. So I think it'll be very it's just going to be a really difficult period of time for all of us as we start to kind of get into what the new normal is going to look like. Absolutely. And even still, I I hate to say, I am just so excited to get there. I am so excited (laughs) for us to, you know, I look forward every day to the point where we're going to have effective therapies, a vaccine. I know this is, you know, not tomorrow. This is months, probably maybe even years into the future before we really have a full handle. But that time is coming. We will be able to travel again, even though we tell a lot of stories about air disasters. We both travel. We love it. We can't wait to go back. So I'm I'm right there with you. I can't wait to find out what the future of travel looks like. And I think for me, I'm just very excited to be part of it. Absolutely. <laughs> and and as more future thing. stories, you know, at least from our standpoint, happy stories. Yes. <laughs> Not like the ones that we cover here necessarily. Yes. Yeah. I want to start living some happy travel stories again. And start sharing some. We'll start sharing some more as we get into some of our our future episodes. And speaking of the future, uh, we, as always, we want to thank you so much for joining us today on Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast. We are eight episodes in now. I cannot believe it. That feels like a huge number right now. And hopefully someday it'll feel like a very small number. But we are really just getting started. We still have a ton of great stories to tell. And we would love to hear from you about the stories that you would like to hear. If you have heard about an air disaster that captured your attention, there's a good chance we're going to want to talk about that too. So let us know. If you are on social media, if you're feeling social, you'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Take to the Sky Podcast. And you will also find us on our website, which is taketotheskypodcast.com. That's where you can go to find our show notes, the sources that we use, our research, all of that information is and more is right on our website. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We love it when you rate, review, and subscribe. And definitely don't forget to join us next time. For now, though, this has been Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast, hosted by Shelley Price and me, Stephanie Hubgut. Stay safe, and we will see you next time.